Welcome to the Just Do It podcast, hosted by Ann Duffy. Dental Entrepreneur Women is here to dive deep and share stories with the mission to inspire, highlight, empower, and connect all women in dentistry. And she's written for uh, Dental Entrepreneur and Dental Entrepreneur Women magazine. She's got the most interesting story. She's a practicing dentist, and you'll hear more about that. She's just an amazing um, mom of two children, a great wife. She does it all. And and um, she's also an international speaker. So she is on the circuit. And also, she just published her first book, which we're going to talk about. And I can't wait for you to meet my dear friend and an amazing dude, and I'm going to bring her right in here in just a second. Her name is Dr. Ronnie Brown. Hello, Ronnie. How are you? I'm good, Anne. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. You've got such an interesting story. I love the fact that you actually are, you know, you do have your own business, but you also are working somewhere where you're getting paid and you're not running the show, so to speak, as far as, you know, all the financial background and of the, of what the dental office would be like. So we'll talk about that. You know, your journey is so interesting because you're the first dentist that I've ever met. Um, honestly, that actually works in a cor correctional facility. And I mean, I can, I, I mean, I'm still curious about why in the world, how did that happen? How did you get there? And tell me a little bit about the journey getting there and then what it's like being there. Yeah, so definitely, and it was not anything that I thought about when I was in dental school. You know, if anyone had ever told me, when you grow up, you're gonna be working at a medium security correctional facility. I probably would have told them, you know, where to go and how fast to get there. Um, but, you know, in dental school, and I went to dental school uh, in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, the model of dentistry was you graduate from dental school, you associate for a few years, and you bought a practice. Mm -hmm. And as a dental student, I really knew that that wasn't, it didn't resonate with me. You know, what resonated with me was when I would go out into the community, when we did our um, extramural rotations, and going out and working with underserved populations. That kind of fueled my passion. And so when I was sitting in my dental school classes and they were talking about private practice, I felt like a fish out of water. And when I graduated from dental school, I did a residency. And then I kind of forced myself into that box. You know, I did associate and I didn't like it. You know, I, 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 it wasn't my comfort zone. It wasn't my passion. So probably um, maybe four or five years out of dental school, I decided I needed to really figure out, you know, avenues, opportunities that would get me back to a public health environment. And at the time, you would go to the Sunday paper because there wasn't LinkedIn or Facebook or sure. email, right? So I remember I would scroll through the Sunday paper and I would just look for jobs for dentists. And one day there's a job for a dentist at the Sonoma County Jail. Now, I cut it out. I didn't even know where Sonoma County was, but it had to be in, it had to be in the Bay Area because it was a Bay Area newspaper. Yeah. And I said to myself, I'd never work at a jail. But I cut it out. I put it on my desk. And every time I walked past my desk, I would kind of create a reason of interest, like, well, wouldn't that hurt? It doesn't hurt to call the recruiter. Or I know I want to make a change, so it might be good to practice my interviewing skills. So the I, I called the recruiter and I really got interested in the in the position. And the night before my interview, I saw the movie Shawshank Redemption with 
Did you ever see that movie, Anne, with Morgan? Oh, yeah. But okay, on purpose or just happenstance? It's just happenstance. Oh, wow. Okay. So as I'm driving up, the following day, as I'm driving up for the interview, I'm really kind of envisioning like a Shawshank Redemption. It's going to be really dark and dirty. There's going to yeah. it's going to break out during the interview. I'm going to be catcalled. I mean, I had all these illusions of grandeur, right? And when I got there, um, it was like a country club. It was very quiet. The, the, the floors were waxed and shiny. And I was escorted back. I never saw cages of people. I never heard anybody. I never saw an inmate. And I was interviewed. The interview went well. And then I was taken to the dental clinic. And I kind of thought the dental clinic would be some type of dungeon with rusty instruments, but it wasn't. And I met my dental, my dental assistant, who was like, uh, had been in dentistry for like 50 years and was like super energetic. And I, at some point, pulled her aside and I said, um, what's it really like working here? And she said, Dr. Brown, this will be the best job you've ever had. Oh. Was 23 years ago. Oh. The best job that I've ever had. <laughs> you know, I, I get to do dentistry. I get to... Um, work with patients that know that are very appreciative. Sometimes I'm the only provider of dental care for them. Um, I've learned a lot about life being there. Um, it set me on the, the map of understanding addiction and its impact on oral health. But I get to see interesting things. I get to hear interesting stories. I've got great cocktail conversation. <laughs> I can, you know, it, it's just, it's a fast, every day is different. It's fascinating. It is absolutely fascinating. 23 years, Ronnie. I didn't realize it was 23 years. That's incredible. Yeah. And especially, especially meeting you in person. I told you the first time I met you, I thought you were at least six feet tall because I saw your posing and all that. And I meet you and you're as big as a peanut. You're just this little teeny thing. You walk yeah. in. I mean, you know, you're, you're, um, I know you're mighty. Uh, because I, you know, I, I could, I, I wouldn't want to try to knock you down, but it's almost like the, <laughs> if I breathe really hard, you fall over because you're just as a minute too. So it's just, it's so, so neat. It just doesn't make sense. And yet it does right. make sense. Well, I think that um, the thing that has been really interesting is that, you know, the inmates are probably more scared of me, you know, not the dental drill and dentistry is one of the most, um, fear producing things that most people experience. Right. And so I've got, I would, I don't want to say the, the advantage, but one, I am providing them a service. They get to request to see me. So by the time they see me, it's something that they want. Oh yes. Oftentimes they say, gosh, this is the first time I felt that I'm not in jail because I, I'm not here. I'm not there to find out why they're there. Hmm. And then with the same degree of care that I provide, if I was in private practice, I'm not, changing the quality um, of the service, but I'm taking care of a need that they have and a need that oftentimes they can't address when they're out of custody based upon their poverty, their addiction, homelessness, um, other competing priorities. And so they're very appreciative. I mean, I get probably more thank yous working at the jail than most private practitioners get. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, when you say it like that, I mean, everybody has the right to have, you know, dental care. I mean, it's almost yes. like, you know, um, it, uh, you know, socialized medicine in a sense, when you right. think about it, I mean, it's, it's just a lovely thing. I, I, it would heart, what's heartbreaking to me, Ronnie, in the general practice and we're fee for service is somebody that needs 
care, is in pain and can't afford to go to the dentist. So you're actually, I mean, that would be a game changer, you know, for, for me to realize that. I think that's beautiful. Um, but you, you know, you see so many different things. I, let me ask you this. What's your schedule look like on a day? Do you have like, is, is it full? Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, the population of inmates is about a thousand. Okay. Only dentists there. And I'm only there two days a week. Okay. So I am never without. Um, usually the wait time to see me is about four weeks. Okay. And I provide services to two facilities within the Sonoma County Detention Center. So I am extremely busy. Um, but the thing that's kind of like what I like about it is that every day is different. So I don't walk into the day with, you know, you know, Jimmy at nine o'clock and Sam at 930. I walk in with a list of people and I have no idea from one person to the other what their need is. So it literally is the provision of emergency services. And so I really enjoy um, the fact that I'm not so scheduled, that it's not that routine of, oh, nine o'clock crown prep, 9.30 profi check, that it's not, because for me, that's boring. Yeah. I, I could have at two o'clock, someone walk in and they just got into a fight and their jaw fractured, <laughs> or they've got this progressive swelling that I've got to address. And so I, or the fact that they may be so mentally impaired now I've got to coordinate care with mental health staff to determine if they are competent to provide me with informed consent. So I love that degree of dynamic that I'm interfacing with the physician, the mental health staff. Uh, we have a contracting oral surgeon, um, medical staff to really coordinate care to make sure that we are doing things that don't jeopardize the health and the life of our patients. Well, but so like as a dental hygienist, I mean, are you are you uh, providing uh, profi and recare for their, your patients? I mean, there are some people come in every six months. I mean, would that be weird? Um, well, we are. So in a jail, people it's a very transient population. So a jail is where people go when they are first arrested. And they are there typically for a short period of time, typically less than a year. Um, sometimes they might be there just for days because their charges got dropped or they have the ability to post bail or they're being held over for court to go in front of a judge and jury to determine their innocence or their guilt. If they are determined to be guilty, then they are sentenced to prison where they are there for a, oftentimes a long period of time. So jail is really just that initial holding pattern. Oh, okay. As a result, we are primarily providing emergency services. Sometimes those emergencies might involve a cleaning, but typically I'm not doing the routine cleaning gotcha. because they are going to be out within a reasonable period of time to seek those services from an outside provider. Okay. Well, that, that's, that gives it me some clarity on that. I've, I've, the difference between the jail and the penitentiary yes. Yes. Is, 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 the, um, is defining there. Well, um, I just can't even imagine the stories you hear. I mean, you can't make those up, right? Yes. It, is that why you decided to to write a book? Because the book is really uh, interesting. I mean, it's going to be great from a clinical standpoint. But do you share stories in the book as well, or or why did you decide to start the book or write the okay. book? Well, Let's start there. Back to my research came out of my work at the jail. Okay. So when I first started working at the jail, overall the population. Probably the, the average age of the population is probably around 26-ish, 
Mm-hmm. And I was seeing uh, really this unusual pattern of decay, just, you know, really young kids, 20 year old kids who had so much decay in their mouth, it was non-restorable. And I was doing full mouth extractions. Oh, and I initially, some of these were 20 year old kids. Okay. And um, initially, you know, coming from dental school, coming from that private practice environment, I kind of was like, oh, you know, eating a lot of candy, drinking a lot of soda, not brushing your teeth. But the pattern of decay was so unusual. It was unlike anything that I'd seen in dental school or even in private practice. Um, as I started to engage my patients in dialogue, I came to understand that what was causing this pattern of decay was methamphetamine. And so 10 years after working at the jail, I decided to go back and get my master's degree in public health. And a master's requires primary research. And so I did my research around the oral effects of methamphetamine. And I utilized my patients at the jail as my study participants. And I wound up conducting at that point one of the largest um, clinical studies on the oral effects of methamphetamine. And that research then got published a few years later. But in the, in the process, uh, and one of the questions I had asked my patients was, you know, before they were my patients, they were patients of somebody else, right? Because they had been out of custody. And so one of the questions that I asked in, in, the, um, in my research was, when you had gone to your own dentist, had your dentist ever recognized that this was meth, meth, meth mouth? Had your dentist ever talked to you about the oral effects of methamphetamine? And only 6% of my study participants reported that they had ever received information from their own provider about the oral effects of methamphetamine, even though the majority had reported being to their own dentist within the last two years. Wow. And had obvious visible signs of methamphetamine use. So with that information, I understood that dentists were not either recognizing the oral effects of methamphetamine, or if they were recognizing it, didn't have the communication tools to have this difficult conversation with their patients. Mm-hmm. And so from that came the development of a presentation aimed for the dental team so that they could once again be better recognizers and communicators and treaters of patients who were using methamphetamine. But then over the course of the years, you know, I had people like you tell me I needed to write. <laughs> and I decided to, um, last summer, write the book. And the book is called A State of Decay, Your Dental Guide to Understanding and Treating Meth Mouth. Wow. And look at that cover. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. Yes. yes. A couple and things. That's my patients. That was a 40-year-old patient who software engineer using methamphetamine. Oh my gosh. I'm I'm, I'm goosebumps. I'm heartbroken for that person. And you know what came up for me on that also, Ronnie, is the fact that we're talking about in dentistry today, treating the whole person and the world systemic. And so I, it's such a tough, uh, a tough conversation to have with a patient in the chair if you recognize it and you know just think about it I, I don't know if this could happen or not but I mean would it be possible for us to be able to thwart that person to keep continue that maybe get that person help before they end up in jail and penitentiary because yes. that's again, just heartbreaking the, it, the people that are addicted are taking over our penitentiaries it sounds like and um Maybe we could have made a difference there. I, I, 
Yes. It, I hope there's help for us in that book when we're reading that. How, how it's, Tell me about what's in the book. Yeah, I, so, I, so absolutely. I mean, I think you hit on all of the things. So um, in the book, I walk the dental team through the three steps, and I call them the RCTs. The three steps that are necessary to help a patient who is addicted. Now, of course, the drug that I'm talking about in the book is methamphetamine, but I think that this book pertains to really any type of addiction. I first talk about what addiction is. And so I want to create that as a foundational framework so I can dispel myths about what addiction is, but really what it is. And it's not something that people choose to be addicted. They might choose to experiment with a drug, but I have never in, in, in the course of treating patients have ever had a patient say, oh, when I first smoked meth or I first injected heroin that I wanted to become an addict. Right. It was just starts the snowballing effect based upon genetic predisposition, based upon environmental stressors, and also based upon being exposed to drugs. I talk about, you know, what addiction is. I then um, talk about how to recognize the physical, the behavioral, the oral clue specifically associated with methamphetamines. So I talk a little bit about the pharmacology, but I do it in a way that's very conversational, very easy to understand. Because understanding just a little bit of the pharmacology will explain the physical, the behavioral, and the oral effects of the drugs because the clues of, of addiction, and really present themselves before the patient ever opens his mouth. The clues of addiction are how the patient presents behaviorally. There's clues of addiction that you can see on the health history form. And so I identify what those clues are. And then I walk the dental team and the reader through the second step, which is how to communicate your concerns and your suspicions, because you have to communicate in a way that first manages your own emotional reaction to addiction, because we all have an emotional reaction to addiction, right? Yeah. We could have, have that reaction of denial. Like I don't have those kind of patients in my practice. They see Dr. Brown at the jail, but one out of every 10 Americans are addicted. So we do have these patients in our practice. Um, it could be shame or embarrassment. Like, I don't want to say anything to embarrass Mary. So I just went ahead and cleaned her teeth, got her out of the office, even though I could smell the alcohol in her breath. Or we might have an emotional reaction of helplessness. Like, well, if I do have a conversation and, and the patient acknowledges addiction, I don't have the tool set to help them. So I might as well not enter into that conversation. So we have to learn how to first identify, and I help you do that in the book, how to identify what your emotional reaction to addiction is. So we can kind of flesh that out and then talk about your professional responsibility. But then we talk about how you manage your own patient's perception of why you're having this conversation, because we don't want to have our patient perceive us as having these conversations because we're accusing them or judging them or even disapproving of them, right? So it's learning how to communicate in a way that balances your emotional reaction to your patient's perception. And I walk the dental team on how to do that. And I share my own stories of how I've been able to do that because, and it started with me as a young dentist to acknowledging that I didn't know what I was seeing in my patient's mouth. And when I initially asked maybe a few months into working, you know, I said to the patient, what are you putting in your mouth? You know, mm -hmm. so many cavities. I wasn't expecting the patient to say, uh, Dr. Brown, I use methamphetamine. Mm. <laughs> and said, I use methamphetamine. I was so naive at the time, and I didn't even know what methamphetamine was. I thought, is it some like 
GNC supplement. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You know? And then I was like, well, once I realized it was a drug, I said, well, why do you use it? And so initially, and for me, I learned about methamphetamine from my patients because yeah. there was research, there was no article. And I was amazed at how willing my patients were at sharing this information with me. At times, it was almost a sense of relief that someone wanted to listen to them without judgment, without accusation. They were curious. They were interested with the whole point of trying to help them. Mm. You phrase the conversation with um, sharing your core value. You know, why we, why we're a dental hygienist, why we're a dental assistant that, you know, I'm asking you because I want to help you. And I understand that when my patients walk through the door, they walk in with their own experiences, their own challenges. And those challenges sometimes get in the way of me helping them get to that level of optimum health or getting them the smile that they desire. So the reason why I'm asking you, if you've ever used methamphetamine, is that this information allows me to help you achieve optimum oral health. It helps us get you to that smile. Mm. And is it that way? You've managed the patient's perception because you shared your core value of helping your patient. So I talk about that. I give a lot of examples. Um, we talk about some do's and don'ts as it relates to, you know, not treating the intoxicated patient, how you have those conversations. And then I walk you through how to treat someone who does have meth mouth. And I'm, I'm not assuming that the reader is an empty slate that you know how to, you know, take an impression, you know, how to mm -hmm. do scaling, you know, how to use a laser, you know, how to do these things, but I'm adding additional strategies that are going to allow that treatment plan to be effective and successful and also approaching a treatment plan with a high degree of caution. If you don't have certain things in place, like you're not able to determine if the drug use is continuing or if the oral hygiene has not been corrected. And then I also provide resources of where you can refer your patient to get the help that's going to help get them on a road to recovery. Oh, gosh. That's that's so there's a lot in a book. <laughs> well, that's rich, though, Ronnie, because I mean, I think of like a particular patient that we've had in our practice that was bulimic and, and nobody would bring it up. And it was upsetting to me because they were doing full mouth reconstruction and nobody was afraid. Everyone's afraid to bring it up. And I was like, oh my gosh, don't you, I mean, what comes first and how do we, but it would have been so wonderful to have an open dialogue or a, a roadmap to start that conversation. Um, and, and we've had patients that come in, but we, we, you, I, I got to tell you, and I'm, I'm, I can't wait to get this book. I'm really, and I'd bring it to the office because mm -hmm. We have patients that come in that are intoxicated or they have uh, alcohol on their breath and, and drug use, but we never bring it up. They leave, we go to the front desk and everybody kind of talks and they go, oh, that person's crazy. And, you know, whoa, what's with them today? But we don't feel like it's our responsibility to do anything to help them. I mean, you are truly making a difference. A, listening to them and letting them be totally honest with you because most people don't have anybody to talk to. And, um, and then just be, you know, really understanding them. And that just, it, they, everybody wants to be understood and wants to be heard. I mean, those two things right there are something that we could do to, to, you know, as Amber Young says, you're not just saving a tooth, you're saving a life. And, yeah. and what we do, Anne, could tip the balance between whether or not we're calling 911 mm -hmm. and for the paramedics to come. I mean, if you've got a patient, whether they're 
they're um, using opioids or depressants or um, methamphetamine, right? And um, based upon, you know, with methamphetamine, someone's high on methamphetamine, you inject them with anesthetic that contains epinephrine, you could trigger a cardiac event. Wow. Bottom line, you could create a heart attack. You could have a patient who has an addiction and then prescribe a medication that strengthens their addiction. And many of our patients have become addicted. We have created an, a, a generation of addiction in some of the things that we've done. Could mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, have a patient who's in recovery. I was uh, an expert witness on a case and in which a patient was in recovery. And in the course of five years, a dentist wrote 152 prescriptions to benzodiazepines and opioids to this patient. Now, there were times when the patient acknowledged that she didn't mind getting those prescriptions, but there's also a point in time when she asked the dentist to stop prescribing them to her. And he stopped for one appointment and then resumed his prescribing with increased frequency, dosage, and quantity. And the patient relapsed. And this case was then referred to the Down Board of California, and the dentist was determined to be grossly negligent in his prescribing practices, and he was forced to surrender his license. So this is what can happen when we don't have these conversations, and they don't have to be difficult. I really, in the book and even in the presentations, I walk the participant, I walk the reader through how to transform what you perceive to be a difficult conversation into one that can be comfortable and informative for both you and the patient. Mm-hmm. Because this is really not just the, the life and death of the patient, but this also is whether or not your treatment plan is successful, right? I mean, we're sometimes we're doing things that are not going to be effective. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. You're going to do full mouth reconstruction, reconstruction on someone who's actively using methamphetamine. You're going to watch all of your margins deteriorate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But having that information and developing a, a, a better position treatment plan yeah, right, uh, is going to be much more rewarding and successful for both you as well as the patient. So I think the book is chock full. I have a lot of stories. I have a lot of vignettes. Um, I think it's, you know, I've, I've previewed it with um, colleagues. It's an easy read. It's not um, heavy. You know, I, I talk about pharmacology, but it's in the conversation. And I talk about why the pharmacology is important to know, how it is important to understand the physical and the behavioral and the oral manifestation. So, you know, there's a lot of people on the lecture circuit who are talking about addiction and talking about pharmacology, but they don't tell you what to do. Right. Difference. I'm telling you exactly what to do. Which is so helpful because, you know, I, I, I don't know if you caught, we had Sharon Part, Dr. Sharon Parsons on the other day, and, and she's on the mission, you know, to eliminate um, certain drugs out there that are um, opioids that are, you know, causing people to die, get addicted. And, you know, for like, there's a diff, there's an alternative here, right? And her story was that, you know, someone was in recovery and then the next thing you know, they've got a prescription for something to get them back into the addictive state. And it's like that that was because that conversation never happened. Right. Because not not very many people. And I think you probably would uh, agree in a general practice are going to say, be honest in the health care or the health, um, the medical history. I mean, that's so often we don't get all the 
the the uh, but we don't get the truth, so to speak. So we have to treat everybody the same in that regard. And 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 almost and honestly, everybody has the opportunity or the chance to become addicted. We don't know, like you say, we don't choose it. So right. this is going to be something again that not only can help us treat patients that are in that state, but also prevent patients from getting in that state. It's right. the awareness of that. I think it's just so, so important. And I love the idea that it's an easy handbook for us. It's easy. It's, it's easy. It's an easy read. It's times funny, <laughs> you yeah. know, um, but it's an easy read. And I think in terms of like, you know, looking at a patient's health history is, you know, there's so many parts of the health history, right? Where patients don't answer it correctly. You know, are you taking a patient? And the patient says no. And then you verbally ask them, they're like, Oh yeah, I forgot. I'm taking lisinopril. Oh, yeah. right. And so, but you know, I I have found it's it's really interesting, Anne, because my patients are kind of in a unique situation, right? Mm-hmm. They are in this holding pattern where they have not yet gone to court to determine their innocence or guilt. And I've got this question on my health history form: Do you have a history of substance abuse? And then, if so, what type of drugs have you used? And and I have like little boxes, methamphetamine, heroin, alcohol, marijuana. Check, check, check. So that makes it easy, right? Yeah. 95% of my patients self-report a history of substance abuse. Now they're at a point when they're get, most of their crimes are because were committed when they were under the influence of a controlled substance. So you would think that they wouldn't want to report this information because it could potentially complicate their criminal proceedings. They don't understand HIPAA and the separation between the medical file and the legal file. But 95% of my patients accurately self-reported history of substance abuse. And I'm able to corroborate it because I have a lot of additional information. Mm-hmm. Challenge that I always kind of have is have this question on your health history form because if my patients are able to answer it and they've got a lot more on the line than most private practitioner patients. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? But also, it's not just that question. There's a lot of other areas on the health history form that signal a substance use history. And you just have to know what those questions are. So we have to really be sensitized to it with the understanding that all of our patients have complexities to to their lives. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And, um, And I think when you approach those complexities with a degree of empathy, you know, um, understanding your own challenges and knowing that other people have challenges allows you to kind of have a different approach to your conversation, if you will. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, I wrote the book and really for two audiences, right? The first audience is for people who have been in one of my presentations and want to really have it as a resource. Do they really think that there's just so much there and there's a lot of exercises that they can do that will help to just kind of solidify some of the things that, they heard during the two or two and a half hour presentation. But I also wrote it for those who, for a variety of reasons, can't attend one of my presentations. I think this information is so important. You know, we are a nation that's addicted. Mm-hmm. I don't want this to be information that's confined to only those who can attend the presentation. I want to be something that has full access to um, every member of the dental team, as well as those who are in different healthcare professions, because we've got to, we can... I truly believe, Anne, if we start having these conversations, we can change that projected trajectory that, you know, we're going to still be a nation that's addicted. Mm. Because if we start talking 
to all of our patients, not just the ones we think may be addicted. But if we start just giving messaging around substance use, no matter how old or how young, because you don't know who is at risk, we are potentially able to stop someone from ever wanting to use a drug. Mm. And to start having not just the conversation around just for the those who are using, we also need to have conversations around those who currently may not be using because they're at risk. Mm-hmm. And we have the potential to change a generation and lower those numbers. So I'm hoping that people will, you know, uh, hear my presentations, take this book, or just have these courageous conversations. Because what we do is beyond teeth. We can yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I, I think that's going to help me. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm looking forward to getting it, to reading it, um, because I want to have those conversations, and I want to, I want to change people's lives. You know, just to give them not more than just, uh, again, saving a tooth or saving their teeth. This is so much bigger, and I think it would help us with, like you said, I would, I didn't even think about that, Ronnie, and the fact that we might prevent somebody from taking that drug. And also maybe, you know, uh, you know, the younger kids, the moms, everything, you know, just having that conversation, helping people see the, um, be more aware of the mannerisms that are going on and to be able to, you know, get that light bulb going on before uh, there's a point of no return. And it's like kind of nip it in the bud, if you will. That sounds too easy. But there are things that we can do that, and you're Absolutely. getting and you're giving it to us in the, in the book. So I'm I can't wait to see one of your presentations. I'm looking forward to that. You have to share those with us on our Duke crew. Okay. Um, you're writing for all of us. You're representing all of us. Do so well, and um, living by the principles of do as um, and that we love. And Ronnie, you know, it was so funny because I was asking you like we were talking about what to talk about, and then I thought you know you had said something about well, what would you do? If you if you could get some airplane tickets today and you could go anywhere you wanted to go, first of all, right. I know would you take your whole family? Okay. <laughs> would you just yeah. take your home? Would you go by yourself? And what would be something fun? And I'm I, I, I'm dying to hear that. So I would I would definitely take everybody. Um, I would go to Australia. I've been there before, but you know it's funny because when I went to Australia, it was like literally right after 9/11. And I was so, um, have you ever gone on vacation, but you were kind of stressed? Yeah, I have. I was, I was in Australia, really worried about work. And I, but I loved Australia. It was so beautiful. And we went to the Great Barrier Reef and we were in Sydney and Melbourne. And I would love to recreate that, but recreate it with, the, with I think, my new mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, um, this is just a new opportunity. This is a new time. And I would love to go back to Australia. Oh my gosh, I love that. That's such a good reason. And where would you go? Where would you go? Where would I go? Oh, I know. I would love to go to Eleuthera, which is in the Bahamas. I'd like to take my hubby Mm -hmm. and go there because we had two trips scheduled to go there. It's we 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 rent a house right on the ocean uh, with some dear friends of ours and twice we got interrupted because we had a medical emergency and we had to cancel the trip at the last minute. So that's the one that comes to mind. But also um, Tom and I were just talking, you know, we have adult 
our, our children are all adults now. So what the next thing we want to do is get some great concert. We don't know who it's going to be. We want to see, um, like, I don't know, uh, Tedeschi and Trucks, whatever. We were talking about that. Wherever they're playing, we want to just go and 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 have all the kids come in and, and uh, see a concert. Have like an event. Because, yes, you need yes. something because they're all over the country. So we got it. We have a gathering place. But it does sound good, doesn't it? Just, you know, it's good to dream about that. So I'm just so thankful that you came on today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much for inviting me and for all of your support and your encouragement. Because, you know, when we first talked on the phone and you said, I want you to write an article, you knew. I didn't know. But I was like, I kept trying to procrastinate that because it was writing is something that scares me. And so that helped me not be so scared of it, but you also have always been that like bright beacon, whether it was at jumpstart or our emails or our phone calls of encouragement. So thank you so much for being a great doer. A great doer. Well, we'll continue to do it together because it's all about all of you. And now look at you. You've got a book. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. you. And everybody out there, keep doing you. Okay. Keep doing you. I'll see you guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Just Do It podcast, hosted by Ann Duffy. To learn more about dental entrepreneur women, to share your story, or to join the movement, please visit our website, do.life. That is D-E-W dot life. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app to make sure you don't miss an episode. And in the meantime, keep doing you.